This episode is kind of a segue from the general experiences of our family to the enlightenment it brought us. It's kind of an answer to uh, what makes you think anyone would want to listen to a podcast of you type episode. It'll be a short 15 to 20 minutes. So it'll be a good one to share with your family and friends. As we discussed in previous episodes, it was December 2019 when I began to recover from two years of treatment-resistant repression. Almost as soon as I crawled out of the madness, I was met with uh, mixed feelings. And rightly so. I was a complex character. Most considered me kind of a wounded lamb requiring care. They were not expecting a dogmatic voice to emerge out of my catatonic state. And what did actually emerge was more lion than lamb. The discoveries locked in my mind over those previous two years now had a voice to release them, and I knew what I had learned in the madness had significant value, and its message could enrich the lives of many that I loved. However, that same message had a significant drawback. It would aggravate the conventionally minded and then further marginalize me as an emotionally compromised individual. So that was the situation. A message worth sharing but one likely to disrupt the mainstream, which was then entrusted to the mind of a crazy man. So I unashamedly shared some thoughts with a few people, making several of them feel uncomfortable. And a lot of these were family and friends. They were people of my faith. We shared common beliefs. So the question comes about what set apart my ideas from those who believed in the same God. In general, Mine was a shift in the comprehension of God's character. So to prepare you, this shift is not easy to swallow. These evident but unsung godly traits don't easily gel with present-day culture. When I would share my thoughts, the cultural discord made it difficult for my listeners to consider the message. Think to yourself, flat earth versus round earth. Same object, different shape, huge mind bender. What I asked of them, as I ask of you, is similar to a request made by the prophet Alma. See if you can give place for a portion of the words. Let the ideas and examples find a space, as my friend Joel would say. Don't dismiss them outright, just let them simmer a bit. You may discover that our Santa Claus-like image of God could actually be the flat earth equivalent of a truly rounded, higher dimensional being. Of course, you should be aware that to gain any knowledge has a cost. And for this information in particular, you must prepare yourself to feel uncomfortable. When I say uncomfortable, I mean like Abraham Isaac uncomfortable, like imprisoned Joseph uncomfortable. Like, son of God, nailed to the cross, why hast thou forsaken me, industrial strength, uncomfortable. And yes, there is reason your consent to discomfort is required, and that reason being that the one condition to activate this perspective is a concession that your view of God's character is incomplete, painfully incomplete. And when I offer this condition, you may think it absurd and say to yourself, I already know that God's good. And you can tell me no more of him. But recall, even on the cross, Christ himself had to recalibrate his understanding of his father's character. He made that evident 
when he admitted surprise at the father's act of abandonment. So pause there. Think that over. In the last moments of his life, Christ was shocked by the way his father acted. Again, why hast thou forsaken me? If Christ understood and expected that, why would he ask why? And even if the question is rhetorical, like if Christ is asking it of himself, hmm, why hast thou forsaken me? It's still evident that Christ lacks the information. So if Christ, in all of his knowledge, did not understand the purpose for the affliction that his father subjected him to, do any of us wholly understand God's character? And then, if you say that you do, what separates your character from his? Are we with our culturally kind God and our longing to be like Jesus, prepared to comprehend God at the moment of our own imminent, though productive, abandonment? Are you ready to be bruised? So don't turn off the podcast just yet if you feel offended. This is not a bashing God pod. Quite the opposite. This is intended to be an enlightening God pod. The intent is actually to understand God more completely, especially when it's uncomfortable. And if we can help each other understand that the hard parts are the most productive, we can anticipate our trials with better preparation. This is the reason why I often imagine God as playing random types of roles of the human experience. As a supremely rational being, his most effective tool in teaching us about his character is the world we live in. Just as we analyze the animal kingdom to enlighten us about ourselves, likewise, God uses our inferior social interactions to teach us about the practicality of his higher realm. So imagine God the Father as a wrestling coach, and preferably a WWE wrestling coach. Please don't take offense to the personification traits that I apply in these scenarios. It's purely so that I can express a complex idea better than my mind and mouth can produce. And it also makes it easier to remember. So again, imagine God the Father as a wrestling coach and Jesus as my tag team partner. Now I'm in the ring getting pummeled and Jesus gets ready to step in. To which then God says... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Cool the jets there, Jesus. I know. Todd usually needs a lot of help. No, nobody doubts you'd have wrapped us up in seconds. What I'm saying is let's give Todd a few minutes slash years in there alone. I need him to see what strength he has within himself. Todd has the capability to fight this demon on his own. but He just needs the opportunity to prove it to himself. And Big J, you know this. If we bell him out right now, Todd won't reach his potential. And all this time, I'm still in the ring. I'm taking several kidney punches, probably fractured my clavicle. God keeps on cheering for me to keep taking the beating. And then randomly he starts yelling, Hey, Holy Ghost, where'd you come from? Get off the ropes. I see you over there trying to influence, and I just got done telling Big J, don't even think about it. Yes, you're right. I don't care that Todd's crying. Have you seen Todd fight before? Those tears are the sign that he's about to take it to the next level. 
So this imagery helps me appreciate when I feel forsaken by God in that it's not because he is sadistic. Instead, he does so because the experience of being forsaken maximizes my personal growth. Placing me on the battlefield alone, I can prove to myself my own strength and potential, especially if it's a scenario in which I no longer require Christ's crutch on the matter. Basically, an idea of a spiritual and emotional provident living. And again, if God exists, the benefit is to know the whole of him, not to limit our understanding to only that which we like. But if you truly intend to be like Jesus and the Father, your desire would be to understand them completely. And that means having the courage to use your eyes to see and your ears to hear. So why then the podcasts? Several times during bouts with severe depression, I found myself struggling with the stigma of my own condition. And initially, I was the one giving myself grief. Todd, why are you such an unmotivated bum? And questioning, why can I be motivated and aggressive in three soccer games and then disappear for the next five? And then think to myself, nobody else here is as fatigued as I am. I must just be a wuss. And then I'd also kick in with church lines, a good one being men are that they might have joy. And that's a quip that I played through my head many times. From that fashionable, though widely out of context statement, I actually supposed God's intent for me was to be flush with joy. And therefore its absence inferred I was doing something wrong. And as this thought was reaffirmed by church culture, including the advice of several church leaders on the matter, I was convinced the problem was a spiritual lack of effort on my part. So to combat that, I dove into an intense level of spiritual commitment for a prolonged period of time. The outcome? One, predictable social disdain from almost everyone around me. And two, an even deeper depression. That was actually an integral moment in my progress as I finally understood the issue was not a spiritual problem, but a biological one. It enabled me to address things more effectively, not wasting my time chasing some cultural ghost. However, what didn't change was the cultural distortion that happiness equates righteousness. Even now, as it was then, I'm regularly disappointed in the Pollyanna expectations promoted through church culture. If there ever was reason for me to call it quits on church involvement, it would be because of the gap of expectation created between church culture and reality. I've truly felt disappointment in the difference between conditions promoted in our culture of happiness and what ended up being my ultimate reality. And I'm not alone. Think about how many people you know who have walked away from church activity. Maybe you are even one of them. Whether the reason be doctrinal, historical, cultural, or emotional like me, a believer turned non-believer nearly always has a moment when they realize, this is not what I thought it was. We are setting people up for failure. And we're doing it in the name of God. All right. Now, maybe that is a bit too dramatic. And most of you probably think so. But a few of you definitely don't. 
Regardless, the situation is far more complex than a simple bait-and-switch-sell scheme. And obviously, more complex than the simply ask-and-receive, knock-and-it-shall-be-open-to-you. So let me say, I know that such gaps of expectation are different for all who look to God for joy. My unique opportunity has been to reconcile what I knew to be true. When I say that, let me actually step back here to clarify. When I say what I knew to be true, I'm referring to several profound events throughout my life in which I experienced an acute, undeniable, and unprecedented physiologic or psychological phenomenon that was either firmly associated with an intense search for heavenly guidance on a matter or as kind of a preparatory precursor to an unexpected prolonged trial. Now, knowing that these experiences of mine were wholly subjective, I admit only I experienced them. No one else can verify their validity. Either they came from a higher dimension or my mind-body complex created some weird, inspiring stuff at a strangely opportune time. Again, I know that such gaps of expectation are different for all who look to God for joy. My unique opportunity has been to reconcile what I knew to be true with my own distorted emotional experience with severe depression and anxiety. So the primary purpose of the podcast is to offer help and hope to those like me whose emotions don't match cultural norms, yet regardless, still desire to participate in God's work. And then secondarily, to help the general population understand that fluffy gospel rhetoric can be a double-edged sword. Now, as our podcast episodes continue, Lindsay and I do not intend to limit ourselves to our own story. To progress productively, we intend to interview people in addition to sharing our own experiences and thoughts. Those we interview will hopefully come from a variety of different backgrounds and struggles because we found that hardships aren't exclusive to the depressed and suicidal. What we have found is that there are a good amount of commonalities between the experiences of those who suffer from all different backgrounds. But more importantly, there are some rare enlightenments that can only be realized by unique individuals who have been providently prepared beforehand for their trial, who are then subjected to circumstances they would otherwise run from. A great example of this is Dr. Viktor Frankl, a neurologist, psychiatrist, philosopher, and Jew who, as a prisoner, entered in the Nazi prison camp system with an inspired idea concerning mankind's meaning in life even when they are subjected to the worst of human circumstances. One could actually make an argument that God purposefully guided such a man into, through, and then delivered out of the Nazi prison camp system, not for the purpose of allowing others to operate their agency, but to actually enable the potential of the suffering individual. And it actually seems that Frankel would make that argument himself as he discusses the substance of love in his worldwide bestseller, Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, he explains... Love is the only way to grasp another human being in the innermost core of his personality. No one can become fully aware of the very essence of another human being unless he loves him. 
By his love, he is enabled to see the essential traits and features in the beloved person. And even more, he sees that which is potential in him, which is not yet actualized, but yet ought to be actualized. Furthermore, by his love, the loving person enables the beloved person to actualize the potentialities. By making him aware of what he can be and what he should become, he makes those potentialities come true. Now, considering love in the form of encouraging potential, even through possible hardship, consider the following words of Jesus Christ. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. It makes one think. If your concept of love does not exercise the courage to then stir potential within those you love, is it truly love at all? Since the age of 15, I've been very active in the LDS religion, whether as a youth or an adult, when life became emotionally stressful, I would commonly get the response, pray more, scripture more, temple more. Responses as if my sadness and apathy were a direct result of poor spiritual effort on my part. Had I not had significant personal confirmation of God's existence previously, I would have walked away from him long ago. Yet because of personal confirmation, I stuck around, working continuously to reconcile the rhetoric of church culture with my life experience. 28 years later, I have reconciled a substantial amount. A reconciliation that could help many others. Because I know there are many who have similar religious conflict, and whether theirs be the result of emotional disorders, historical concerns, or doctrinal issues, my experience can help some find their own reconciliation. I'm confident that I have a unique perspective on God's purpose for nearly every subjective or objective concern, to which many listeners, especially the cynical ones like myself, express doubtful sarcasm. Sure, you've got a unique perspective. To which then I'd sarcastically respond in kind? Yeah, you're probably right. I'm sure there's lots of active, previously suicidal church members who openly talk about their ideations. I mean, who hasn't, who hasn't asked God what spiritual benefit comes from desiring death? A unique perspective. Hopefully we can offer you some. <laughs>